The scripture reading is Proverbs 24, verse 11. Hear the word of our Lord. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord God, our heavenly, righteous, and holy Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, Lord, we come before you. We, your people, are here, gathered in your name, on your day, and here I am, Lord. I pray that you would use this message, Lord. I pray that you would use me. I pray that you would help me proclaim the excellencies of Christ this morning in the context even of abortion. Lord, I pray that you would give me grace to preach this word. From apart from you, I can do nothing. We love you, Lord. Let your name be glorified. Let your people be edified. And let sinners be convicted and converted unto you this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Nick Matei, and I'm a member here at Oak Ridge Community Church. I have been involved for the past two and a half, almost three years, in a local abortion mill ministry. And I felt compelled this morning to take this opportunity to preach a sermon on abortion. And the structure of this sermon this morning will reflect the four-part message that we use when we call out to the women that are going into Planned Parenthood and other abortion mills. So it's four parts. The four-part message is this. One, God is the creator of all life. You and your child are created in his image. Two, abortion is murder, and it is a terrible sin. Three, there is hope and redemption in Jesus Christ, his son, if you repent and trust in him. And four, we are here to help you with whatever you need. So those are the four parts, and I'm going to be taking those four points and going over the theological and philosophical foundations for each of those points. So one, God is the creator of all life, and he has made you and your child in his image. We begin where the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle of all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There's been much written over the centuries in the history of the Christian church over the idea of what is the image of God. I don't have time to dive in too much into that at this moment, but essentially 
humans are the image of God. We don't have the image. We are intrinsically the image of God. God has created us in his image. We are his replicas on this earth. We are to reflect him and who he is and his character. So he has made us as moral, originally moral, righteous, rational, religious, spiritual beings that are responsible to him. We are to reflect his character. We are to have dominion over the earth. We are to rule as he rules. We are his vice regents in this world. So we were initially created to reflect God in all of his character. And we are to image him as the apex of God's creation. So that is what it means to be in the image of God. We are created in his likeness. We are to reflect him. This is true not only of those outside of the womb, but it is true of those inside the womb. And we'll see this all throughout scripture. We begin in Genesis 4 verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Now let's look at this verse very quickly here. Genesis 4.1. Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain. A person is both conceived and then born in this passage. He doesn't come into existence according to this verse. He doesn't have a personhood in this verse only after being born. It says he was conceived and then he was born. We see this again in Job 3.3. May the day perish in which I was born and the night in which it was said a male child is conceived. Psalm 22.10. From my mother's womb you have been my God, says David. He is a person in the womb trusting in the Lord as it were. It's a poetic verse. But the idea is, even from his mother's womb, he has existence. He is a person. He is trusting in the Lord. We see this also in one of my favorite verses in Jeremiah chapter 1. This is the calling of the prophet of God. Jeremiah says this, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations." Even before Jeremiah was conceived in the womb, God says, I knew thee. I knew thee. I had a plan for you. So even before conception, God knows the soul. God knows who he's bringing into existence according to his foreordained purposes. So it's not just simply even at the point of conception. God knows all of us. He knows our times and our seasons and when we are to be conceived and born into this world. Paul picks this up in the New Testament. He says this in Galatians 1.15. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Again, Paul is picking up on this verse from Jeremiah. He's saying, before I was even born, God separated me for the service of apostlehood. Now, Paul was a, was a man that persecuted the church for years, but yet it says in his womb, in his mother's womb, he was set apart for this purpose in which he was going to be born for. We see in the Psalms again and again this idea of children being conceived in the womb as a blessing, that children are a handiwork of the Lord. Psalm 127. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but speak with their enemies in the gate. So 
someone who is blessed with many children, the Bible says that is a blessed man. That is a blessed family to have many, many, many children. How opposite the way our culture thinks about it now. To have many children, it says, the highly favored and blessed of the Lord, you have many children. It is a great reward. But not only are babies in general a blessing, but do we not see that throughout Scripture, the only hope of redemption for humanity came through a pre-born child in a successful pregnancy. We see this in the very beginning of Genesis. After the fall, God immediately brings in the first gospel, the first proclamation of hope for humanity. And what is it framed in? He said, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You shall bru- he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we see here the promise of the seed of the woman. This is what the saints in the Old Testament were waiting for for thousands of years. This promised seed of the woman that would come and crush the serpent's head. This was a hope of a seed, a child to be born, a Messiah, Shiloh as he was called, uh, waiting upon in the Old Testament as Moses says. This is the idea of a preborn child coming to save humanity and through a successful pregnancy, be born into this world, and then redeem men and women unto himself. And we see this detail in Luke's gospel. So Luke and Matthew detail the birth of Christ, but Luke gives the most detail about it. So I wanted to read a section here from Luke, and just listen to the language of what Scripture places upon the importance of the incarnation, the importance of the birth of Christ, the importance of his preborn state. Luke chapter 1. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel, the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month of her that was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Now Mary rose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped inside her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is it this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. This is probably one of the most explicit passages in the New Testament and all of the scriptures showing the value of the human being, the person inside the womb. John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Christ, he is the voice in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way for the Lord. Even as he is in the womb, he cannot contain his joy for being in the presence as it were only a few feet away from the mother of his Lord. And Jesus at that point conceived in that moment is in the womb and John is rejoicing over the Messiah that is next to him. This is two, as it were, unborn humans having a relationship. And this is incredible. The, the scriptures are not silent about this. They're very, very concerned about this. Human beings begin, the human soul, the person begins at the moment of conception. That's a soul, that's a human being with unalienable rights. They have value, they have worth. And we are catching up to this with biological science. The scripture's always been there, but now we're finally catching up to this. Biological scientists teach the same thing. Embryologists Keith L. Moore and TVN persuade write, a zygote is the beginning of a new human being. Human development begins at fertilization the process during which a male sperm unites with a female egg to form a single cell called a zygote. This highly specialized totipotent cell marks the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. And do we see here the very importance of the incarnation then? That the Lord Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, he is the son of the living God. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of all the cosmos. And yet he chose by the behest of the Father to come and be incarnate in flesh. And he took on the form of a servant. He took on flesh in the form of a zygote. And then went through all development stages up until adulthood. Jesus thus sanctifying and dignifying all of human development. Jesus did not just simply appear in Galilee and start preaching in flesh. He took on the normal process of how a person is generated in this world. He dignifies it. He shows not only do I create life, I will incarnate myself in the process and dignify the whole thing. This is really marvelous if you think about it. But we have to move on. Probably the most explicit verse outside of Luke 1 in all the scriptures talking about the, the wonders and the glory of the child in the womb is Psalm 139, beginning in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now this is a beautiful passage in the Psalms. It shows the beauties of what God is doing in the process of the baby being developed in the womb. And I thought of no better thing to, to bring exegetical force to this scripture here than to exegete poetry with poetry. Brother Timothy Brindle has masterfully exegeted this portion of Holy Scripture with his own form of poetry, speaking from the standpoint of the child in the womb. He writes as follows, I am a fetus being created by Jesus. 
fearfully and wonderfully made, amazed at this genius. My brain with its pieces and my face with its features being stitched together like they've been made with it by a seamstress. In my mother's womb, I'm being woven together, spilling over from his joy, the overflow of his pleasure, intricately weaving me. It has me baffled. That's the same word for the embroidering of the veil in the tabernacle. Your eyes saw my embryo, tendons grow, then my tiny ten fingers grow, then my toes ten of those. Your presence is all around, it's all profound. You see me in my mommy's womb before she had an ultrasound. You planned my birth, I am your handiwork. The same hands who made the expanse and the planet Earth. You've begun my little tongue to give abundance of praise. Your love is displayed in how I'm wonderfully made. At the moment of conception, you've begun my soul. Psalm 139.14, this word for wonderful is the one place in scripture where the naturals described as supernatural because this act of crafting me is so masterful. Do you see this glory that is revealed by the Lord feeding me from my mother from her umbilical cord? I can't wait for the sight to see my mommy's face in the light. But wait, now mommy's contemplating taking my life. And that leads us to point two of the message that we bring at these mills. Abortion is murder, and it is a terrible sin. So one, God is the creator of all life. He made you and your child in his image. Two, abortion is murder. It's a terrible sin. And is this not the obvious conclusion of what we just saw here, that God values the life in the womb he creates at the moment of conception the soul has begun? Human persons are there at that moment. We have intrinsic value. We're made in his image. Therefore, to unjustly take that life is murder. For it says in the scriptures, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. John Murray writes this. Of all the sins which are concerned with our relations to our fellow man, murder is the capital sin. As a violation of the summary commandment, you shall love thy neighbor as thyself, it is a unique category because as far as this world is concerned, there is no way of being reconciled to the victim of our wrongdoing. No way of remedying the breach. No way of securing his forgiveness. End quote. And this act of abortion is not simply just a flipping of a switch and a life ends. It is a violent, barbaric process that is not clean and it is utterly, obviously, destructive to this child. It is murder by starving, poisoning, suctioning, and dismemberment. But it's not just that. It's, it's not just simply murdering the image bearer of God in the womb. It, it's murder based on two other sins, the sins of selfishness and the sins of partiality. And I'll ex explain that in just a moment. So one or 1A if you're trying to follow along in notes. The selfishness of child sacrifice. We see again back in the Old Testament a, a parallel to what's going on here. Back in the days of, of the Bronze Age and even before that, as the Israelites were being commanded to go into Canaan and wipe out the Canaanites as a holy war that God has commanded them to do to cleanse the land that they might inherit it, the people dwelling in the land were called Canaanites, and there was different names for different them, but we'll just stick with the name Canaanite for now. 
they had many different gods that they worshipped. But one of the gods they worshipped, his name was Molech. And he was a half man, half bull. So it was a man's body with a bull's head, and they worshipped him. And a part of the rite, as it were, a part of the Canaanite rite to this god, Canaanites would offer their children in a rite of sacrifice, which would involve bringing their infants to a large bronze statue of Moloch with outstretched arms, and a fire would be kindled inside the hollow bronze statue until the idol would be glowing. Then the parent would place their child in the hands of Moloch and watch as the baby dies. These pagans believed they would receive power, fortune, and even youth from the gods in exchange for this rite of sacrifice. Matt Slick comments on this saying, I can't help but compare today's abortion massacre to the sacrifice of children by these ancient pagans. In both, innocent life is destroyed for the gain of the parent. End quote. It is murder because they are, they are image bearers of God. It is not only murder, it is done on the premises of selfishness to gain something from the act. And not only that, it is also a sin of partiality. Partiality, what do I mean by that? James talks about don't be partial, my brethren. It is being prejudiced towards people for some accident of their being, whether it's age, ethnicity, class. This is ageism on steroids. This is looking at young, preborn humans and saying, because they're not this, that, or the other, we can kill them. They don't have rights. This is partiality. And I, I want to give you a helpful acronym here that we use out of the abortion mills is we're lovingly engaging people about their, their logic concerning why it's okay to kill a baby in the womb. It's called SLED. So S-L-E-D. It stands for this. Size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency. Again, that's size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. And it goes like this. We do not get to kill someone for how big or small they are, that's size. We do not get to kill someone for how developed they are in their life. We don't get to kill someone for where they are located, and we don't get to kill someone for how develop, or excuse me, how contingent they are upon other people, how dependent they are upon other people. And that's really the only difference between that little baby in the womb and all of us are those four things. Their size is different, their level of development is different, their environment is different, and their degree of dependency is different. But that's the only difference between us and them, really, because they have unique DNA setting them apart as a unique individual. In God's eyes, they are an individual. He put them there. He created them there. They are a person. They are one of us. The only difference are those four things. And we do not get to decide who lives and who dies by those four categories. And if you press someone on this, they would agree, well, yeah, I guess that is true. Because if someone is laying on the bed in a hospital and they are not responsive or they're dependent upon the hospital to keep them alive, we don't get to say, therefore, your life is forfeit. You are dependent upon someone else now. If someone is in jail or in another area of the world just because their environment's different, we don't say, therefore, your life is forfeit. You're in a different environment. We don't also say, what well, you're too small or you're too big, you now longer have right to live. These things are logical fallacies that do not bode for Christian morality. This is partiality. It's simply saying there's something about that person that's different than me. I'm going to be partial towards them and treat them different.
Let there not be partiality amongst us, brethren. That's what James says. This is the things that need to be said. People need to hear this. Mothers need to hear this because they are being duped by the society to give them false hope, false logic, and understanding why it's okay to do this. We bring forth first the word of God, and then we bring forth logical arguments like these. Now, perhaps at this moment, and I can agree with you, this is a heavy topic. This is intense. This is sharp. And some might be saying, that's not the right approach. You just need to tell them that Jesus loves them and to look at their ultrasound. Do not bring in this idea of image of God, of sin, of murder. Don't call it that. That's not helping anybody. Well, I'll tell you this. The fear of God saves lives, brothers and sisters. We have a woman outside, Planned Parenthood, that comes with us almost every week. She was adopted from Columbia. Her name is Jessica. Her mother was going to abort her about 30 years ago. Instead, she chose to set her up for adoption. She was adopted by a couple here in the United States, and now she comes out to the abortion mills with us. And she has said this multiple times. She says, the reason I exist is the fear of God. My mother feared God and gave me up for adoption. So she takes it very personally when people are out there saying, you can't bring in the law like this, the law of God. You can't bring in this talk about murder and fearing God. She says, if we took your approach, I'd be dead. The fear of God saves lives. This must be brought to the conscience that this is murder. This is a human being. They must be treated just like you and me. Sugarcoating things don't, doesn't help anyone. John Murray says this, Nothing shows the moral bankruptcy of a people or of a generation more than the disregard for the sanctity of human life. So we have to bring, as it were, the law before the gospel. We have to bring them the bad news before the good news. But it doesn't stop there. We don't stand outside these abortion mills and say, God's the creator of all life, abortion's murder. And then we leave. No. We always, and we sit on this point longer than the other two, we bring it to the third. There is hope and redemption in Jesus Christ. Repent and trust in him. Faithful proclamation of the gospel is how people are saved. And that is our hope when we are out there. We're not simply offering them another medical option. We are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and declaring to them that no matter what you have done, no matter what you are thinking of doing, God in Christ can save you. And he saved us. We are out here no better than you. We're just simply beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. And this is the great hope and comfort for those women who've already murdered their child in abortion and are repenting and entrusting themselves to Jesus Christ. This scripture from Matthew, though it troubles many, has actually got the greatest truth in it. Matthew 12, 31. All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Now most people read that and they immediately fixate on what's the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. I'm not going to get into that today. What I'm saying is read the first part of that verse. All, this is Jesus, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. All manner. Child sacrifice included. All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. Romans 8.1 There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. 
This is the hope for anyone, even in this audience, who has had this happen to them or have done this. That you know as well as I do that God promises, I will blot out your iniquities like a thick cloud. I will cast your sins into the depths of the sea. I will remember them no more. I will remove them as far as the east is from the west. There is no condemnation if you are trusting in Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you of all unrighteousness. That is the hope of the gospel. It is not hopeless. We are out there proclaiming the most strong, powerful, nuclear strength message out there possible is that your sins can be forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. We say that again and again. We present Christ in all of his excellencies, that he is the, the, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the perfect man. He was born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, crying, Abba, Father. This beautiful message of not only are we calling out to women, we'll adopt your baby, but we ourselves are adopted people here. We have been adopted into God's family. We're saying, be reconciled to God. We cry out to them. And we say, God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. This is what we preach to them outside. And this is an ultimate message of hope. The person and work of Christ, that Christ Jesus is the Messiah, that he came, he lived the perfect life. He died on the cross for sinners. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose again triumphant over the grave. And his blood can cleanse anyone and everyone of sin if they but come to him in repentance of their sin and faith in him to be their savior. That is the promise that God will cast out none that come to him. Anyone that calls upon the name of the Lord shall not be put to shame. That is what the scriptures say. God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is what we stay on. I rotate for like two hours saying those verses out there. I don't stay on the other ones as long. It's the gospel, and it's what saves people. Also this, Isaiah 55, no matter what they're going through, no matter what sins they've committed, no matter what they're thinking of doing, no matter if they've had seven abortions already, I bring this, as it were, the gospel of Isaiah, Isaiah 55. Everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come by and eat. Yes, come by wine and milk without money and without price. And why do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good. And let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall be saved." And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is the great good news that we proclaim and it is the way that hearts and minds will be changed that there will no longer be a desire to murder children because they are redeemed by the blood of the lamb and have new life. I call out many times and say this, don't accept the sacrifice of your child, accept the sacrifice of Christ and he will fix your life. Our, our, the verse we read at the beginning here from, from Proverbs 24, 11, rescue those who are being taken away to death, 
Hold back those who are summoned to the slaughter. Now there's an application I'll bring to that at the end here, but do we not see that this is actually something that first and foremost Jesus Christ obeyed for us? Jesus is the true rescuer who rescued us from death. Jesus is the one who interposed himself and held us back from stumbling to the slaughter. So we, just like him, should follow our Lord in doing the same for our neighbors. Jesus is the true rescuer. He rescued us from death. Now, I do preach all these things, and we bring these things out for good reason. But we also qualify it in saying this. This is not something like cheap grace. Like, oh, great, I'll go in and do that, and I'll come out, and I'll say that I'm sorry. I say this, Psalm 66, 18. If I regarded iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not hear. So this is not something like, yeah, just do it afterwards. It's fine. It's like, today is the day of salvation. We are here for a reason. You are hearing this now. Repent now. Don't put this off as something you can just tempt the Lord with and say, well, I'm sorry. It's like, no, the scriptures say, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not hear. So this is true grace, but it's not cheap grace. This leads to our fourth point. We are here to help you with whatever you need. And we mean that. Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul says in Philippians 2, 3-4, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty pride, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Each of you should look unto not only your own interests, but also the interests of others. And that comes in all form of practical material needs. We can help with adoption. We can help with clothing, food, child care, financial support for medical bills, prayer, counseling. And like I said, the, the most important thing is adoption. We want to be like the early church who in Roman society, it was okay if a child was unwanted to leave them by the roadside. It was called exposing your child. And then the dogs or the wild animals would come and eat them and they would just die. What Christians did in large numbers in the early church is they would come alongside, adopt these children, nurse them back to health, and then raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And I say to all of us Christians, in this time, let us emulate those brothers and sisters. Let us adopt these unwanted children and raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Let us consider how we can be hospitable. Let us think about not only how we can do good to others, but how we can also be like our Heavenly Father and adopt others into our family just as we have been adopted into His family. So let those of us who are able to adopt seek to consider this. Now to some points of application. Four points matching the four pillars of the message here. Number one, repent with me. Two, pray. Three, give. Four, go. Number one, repent with me. For 49 years in this country, we have witnessed the murder of over 60 million little boys and girls. And the number one cause of death worldwide over the last two years has not been COVID, it's been abortion. But we, even in the church, don't talk like that. COVID's been the thing that's been the big scare, not the continual drum of little souls being murdered. 
Now, I'm not going to tell any of you how or what to repent for, but I can just give you the example of what I repent for. I've been a Christian for a little over seven years. I've only really been engaged in this fight for maybe three. So I repent and I tell the Lord I'm sorry for my indifference. I'm sorry for my lethargy over all these things. I'm sorry that I just haven't cared. I'm sorry that I expected other people to do that fight. And I repent for compromise. And this is where I hope to have a second message opportunity. I don't have time to get into that this morning. But I hope that I would be given a second opportunity to preach on gospel-centered abolitionism. Because that is the only, I think, biblical approach to this issue. The reason why abortion is still legal is because we have not taken a complete and immediate approach to the abolition of abortion. I repent of that as well. I did not hold that position for many years. And hopefully, God willing, have an opportunity to, to expand that in some future message. Number two, pray. I mean, really pray. Pray. Set aside days in your week. Set aside periods throughout the week. Set a time of fasting. To fast and pray that the Lord would raise up righteous legislation to end this Holocaust in this country and around the world. Pray that the Lord would raise up more laborers to go out into the harvest. Pray that the Lord would change the hearts and minds of women that are going in and seeking to do this. Pray for the abortionists that do this every day to these children, that they would see the horror of it in turn. Pray for those who volunteer their time to escort women into these Planned Parenthoods, these abortion mills, that their hearts would be changed. Pray that the church would be awakened to this and say, enough is enough. This has happened way too long. This is ending now. Pray that the Lord would show you what he wants you to do in response to this issue that is not going away. It is still here. Number three, give. Find, as you pray and research, good gospel-centered places to give of your tithes and offerings to. There are many pro-life organizations across the country, across the world. But I would strongly urge all of you to consider where that money is going. If they do not support the preaching of the gospel and do not have a gospel-centered approach, they're not making a dent in this issue. There are multiple organizations that are gospel-centered, that are standing for the abolition of abortion, that are making major headway right now. And I could give you two examples to think about giving to. One would be End Abortion Now. They've raised over 800 churches worldwide to go out in front of the abortion mills and preach the gospel, and thousands and thousands of children have been saved through their ministry. End Abortion Now. Number two, Rescue Those is another organization I would highly recommend. Gospel-centered, compassionate, seeking to abolish abortion, making headway, and following the Lord in this. Number four, go. I want to be careful in this application, as I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush and suggest that every single Christian in the United States, as a part of their duty to stand against child sacrifice, must go out to the abortion mills. That would be too imbalanced, 
and I know that there are many brothers and sisters who are already involved with other kingdom ministries and duties that would prevent them from doing that, prevent them from doing more than just praying and giving. However, I think that there are many, many Christians standing on the sidelines who need to get into this fight. I think a lot of Christians are asking themselves, as I did for a while, Lord, what would you have me do? Lord, use me. Here I am, Lord, send me. I want to be used of you, Lord. And it seems as though nothing is happening and there's still idleness as they're asking the Lord, what will you have me do? Well, to those of, the, those of you who are thinking that, if there's anyone in this audience thinking that, I would simply say, join us. Come out with us this Saturday to Planned Parenthood in St. Paul. Come out and stand and pray and proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Consider adopting. Consider standing and physically being there. We've been told by women years ago that had other, saw other people standing out there that I had an appointment that day and I saw people standing out there and I kept driving. You do not know the impact of what you're doing by just simply being there. You don't have to be this amazing preacher. You don't have to have this amazing gift to interact with people. Just standing there is being salt and light. You are literally saving lives by standing in front of these abortion mills. We have seen over the last three years seven babies saved by going out and doing that. And we've also seen by the power of God one abortion mill in Bloomington almost completely shut down their operations of killing children by faithful Christians showing up every Saturday, proclaiming the gospel, offering hope, praying, singing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, and dispelling the darkness. God is on the move in this country. The church is waking up. There is a movement afoot. I plead and implore you, get into this fight. Get into this. This is a movement that is happening that I think and I pray and I hope will finally be the death knell of abortion in this country and around the world. The fields are ripe for the harvest, brothers and sisters. Let us pray that the Lord of the harvest would raise up and send out more laborers into the harvest. Final word. I'll give it to Brother Jeff Durbin, who started End Abortion Now. Do you want to end abortion? End it with the gospel. End it with the church, and end it with a consistent Christian world view. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord, we thank you for your word that guides us. It's a sure word in times of trouble, Lord. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, I do pray that you would stir in your church in the country of the United States of America, that more churches, more elders would be stirred to go out and to rescue those who are being brought to death and to hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. Lord, I pray that you would abolish abortion and spew it out of the land, Lord. I pray that you change hearts and minds, Lord, that no one would desire to do this to their own, the fruit of their own womb, that you would heal women who have had this have done this, Lord, that you would bring redemption, that you would cause women to want to start a legacy for their child, Lord, and that you would stir within your church to start adopting, Lord, start clearing out the foster care system, Lord, showing people that we have something more valuable than anything they can imagine. Lord, please bless us, Lord, please give us grace to fellowship the rest of this day and to honor the Lord's day, and we just pray that your will would be done. Show each and every one of us what you would have us do, Lord. Please use your word, Lord, 
and bless the message to the hearers, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Very thankful for that message um, and for the Lord's provision in it and for the fruit he will bring from it as we have some unfolding and growing opportunities as a body to engage in what we have just been hearing about. You'll be hearing more about that, I believe. And with that in mind, I'd like to read uh, from Psalm 72, um, a psalm that reflects on an earthly king, most likely Solomon, but certainly also very much reflects on and foreshadows King Jesus. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. And may um, this coming week for each of us be filled with sights and signs of his glory as he gives us eyes to see them. <clears throat>